This podcast is brought to you by the book, The Memoir Project, a thoroughly non-standardized text for writing in life, published by Grand Central Publishing. Recently updated and reissued in a new edition, it will teach you everything you need to know to write memoir. For more information, see the show notes or purchase wherever books are sold. Welcome to QWERTY. I'm Marion Roach-Smith. Each episode, I talk to writers from all genres to discover what makes a good read. And along the way, we discuss their writing process, discover their tips, and talk about what matters most to writers. So step away from the computer or typewriter for a bit and join us. Today, my guest is writer and author Amy Biancoli. Amy is a staff reporter and writer for the online site Madden America, a journalist with decades of experience writing about the arts, culture, film, and many other topics for the Times Union of Albany, as well as for the Houston Chronicle and Hearst newspapers. She's also the author of three books, two of the memoirs of loss and grief. Her most recent is Figuring Shit Out, Love, Laughter, Suicide, and Survival. It's an account of the year following the suicide of her husband. She's a graduate of Hamilton College and the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. Welcome, Amy. Well, thank you so much for having me, Mary, and I'm really happy to be here. Well, it's a joy for me. I admire your work so much, and I think if we set this up a bit for people, they'll understand where you're coming from. And so uh, let's just get up uh, the experience thing here. The Graduate School of, of Journalism at Columbia, as I mentioned, is a, is a marvel of a place. Uh, you're being an arts writer, a movie critic, both in Texas and in upstate New York is lots and lots of experience. But I wanna talk a little bit about what writers bring when they come into this job, because Obviously, you learn the basics in college and you learn the ethics of journalism, the structure of news stories and criticism at journalism school. But what do you think you had on you when you entered this world of writing and and giving Mm. a little thought to what you might advise people pack on them when they come into this world? So this is quite a backstory, so I'll try to keep it concise Mm because, you know, that's always a goal (laughs) in writing. (laughs) Growing up, my dad was a classical music critic and author. He wrote for the, the New York World Telegram and, and Sun. Mm-hmm. So I grew up with a love of the arts, love of music, and also surrounded by an appreciation for and reverence for journalism. Not only because of my dad, but just because of the household I grew up with. And, uh, you know, I also grew up in the era of Watergate, which is, <laughs> this is strange, but I, I was about nine years old. Um, <laughs> when the Watergate hearings commenced, and I, I was addicted to them. <laughs> that was my binge watching. I would get <laughs> off the bus and run up the hill to my house. This was in Connecticut, where we moved permanently when I was uh, two. And I would just watch. I was obsessed. And the journalists covering that became my my heroes. And mm. that sparked my interest, that and my dad's nearly 40 years in arts journalism and music journalism really inspired my love of journalism, my reverence for it. And ultimately, you know, I said, oh, I want to be, I want to be a journalist when I grow up. But at the same time, I wanted to be a writer with a capital W. And I don't know that I could have told you what that meant, but I knew I had a drive to write. And I know that's not necessarily the same thing as the drive to report and craft stories. 
But I had these twin drives, and I, even though I'm not sure I could articulate them exactly, they definitely had formed, made themselves manifest when I was in high school. And it was definitely at the forefront of what I wanted to do and what I wound up doing and studying and um, participating in in college as well. You know, that's where I started writing for the you know, the local, the, the college weekly. And, hey, you know, you do what people who want to be writers do. You major in English and you read, you know, lots of books by Faulkner. And, <laughs> and, um, and I was like, wow, uh, you know, am I going to become that kind of a writer with a capital W? So I think everyone has a conception of what it means to be a writer. And we have this kind of inflated world fame college courses named after you conception of what it means to be a writer. And what I think is the most important takeaway, it's really about figuring out what you want to say and how you want to say it. Hmm. And having some, not always enjoyment, because writing isn't necessarily fun, but having some sense of, I don't know if even satisfaction is the word, but some sense of closure or some something that you glean from it that helps inform who you are and your own understanding of the world. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I don't think I understood all that at that age. I certainly didn't understand all that uh, in college or even in grad school. But yeah, I think that's it. And you know, I also had a had a, an English professor. I had two professors. One who was really inspiring and helpful in how I shaped my writing, and another who basically asked me literally on a paper, why are you wasting my time? <laughs> <laughs> and, and both were formative, you know? Yeah. Both yeah. of them were formative and really informed me. Formative and informational, they really informed my path, my developmental path as a writer from that point on. Mm-hmm. Like, what does it mean to waste a reader's time, but what do I want to say, and what's the worst best way to say it and how do I follow and craft my own voice yeah what do you want to say and what's the best way to say it is is a wonderful way to phrase it and I get that we talk a lot in memoir writing about what's your argument even though many people come to the memoir field thinking they're just going to write the history of themselves of course they're not if they want anyone else to read it and we do have to have a sense of of what it is we want to say and in what format we want to Related. And so with that in mind, I'm, I'm very curious. I know with this beautiful background in music, it makes sense that one of the things you had on you all the time was this this music, this love of music. And I know that you yeah. still perform. You perform as a jazz fiddler with the group called Hot Tuesday. But you grew up amid music and, and criticism. And it's not surprising that your first book was a biography of violinist and composer Fritz Kreisler. It's called Fritz Kreisler Loves Sorrow, Loves Joy. But I'd like you to talk a little bit about giving yourself some permission. I mean, that's a holy, really, as in capital H, holy field, music and criticism because of what your dad did, because Mm -hmm. of your musical background. Is it permission we give ourselves or was it literally following a command that you go and write something that was musical? What do you think now, looking back? That's a good question. Well, you know, what's interesting is, you know, my mother was a concert violinist. That's how my parents met. Mm -hmm. And my late sister was was a concert pianist, an aspiring one. So, (laughs) as I said, and as you just reiterated, music was a huge part of my upbringing. And the desire 
to write the book about Fritz Kreisler was one of absolute curiosity and love of his, his music, mm-hmm. but it also came from my experience as an amateur violinist. Back then I was very happy, very flawed, still very flawed, but back then I was a flawed classical amateur. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's the nature of it. You make yeah. mistakes. Not not everybody is Joshua Bell or Fritz Kreisler standing up on a stage. But I, my mother just adored Chrysler. She once followed him in New York City for 12 blocks, trying to screw up the courage to talk oh. to him. And yeah, oh. talk about using your voice. Chrysler had a very distinct voice. It was very warm. It was very human. That's why he was loved. He was also a virtuoso, but he had a voice. And there's no mistaking his voice from anybody else's voice. And my mother played a lot of his music, and she also kind of channeled him in different ways. And then when I went back to the violin, as I had quit as a kid to play softball and soccer, it was my Mm -hmm. form of teenage rebellion. When I went back to it in my early 20s to take lessons... I started appreciating Chrysler more, and when I moved to Albany, my first teacher here, she adored Chrysler, and she was trying to show me something about his tone and his vibrato, and I just, I thought, I want, want to learn more about him. And so I started looking for a, a recent biography of him that, or fairly recent, that captured his whole, whole life. He died in 62, and the only one was published about 12 years earlier. And I thought, huh, there's no complete biography of Fritz Chrysler. Well, I guess I better write one. (laughs) And so if you had asked me, Amy, what kind of books do you want to write? Like back when I was thinking about becoming a writer with a capital W, you know, thumping on my chest. I don't think I would have said I want to write a musical biography, but I just was curious. I wanted to learn more about him. Mm. And uh, that started a years-long quest. And the more I learned about him, the more I loved him. That's how that happened. (laughs) Yeah, and that's beautiful because it's got both the intimacy of the story of your mother following him for 12 blocks. So in the short version, you caught up with him. You did kind of yeah. tap him on the shoulder. It's like, Mom, I got it from here. I'll ask him. I mean, not that you literally did because he was he had died before you wrote the book. But it also talks about closing that gap between detachment and intimacy because in that yeah. case, it was your mother to this, you know, it was almost going from the, a very intimate experience of provocation to the detachment that's really required to write biography. And you flip that on your head, on its head, when you go to write your next book in which you take on family. And The House of Holy Fools, a family portrait in six cracked parts. Just a great title. You tell the story from the perspective of the youngest child in a family. Do you lose your family in, in two years, over a period of two years' time? And you describe it as written with humor and hope, a memoir of music, madness, miracles, faith, and the insistent tug of life in the face of grief and death. And I would agree, and I'm so glad you put humor first because there is so much humor in it. But that is a tricky place to go, going into Mm. one's own family. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about the territory of going in there. You've now jumped into the intimate, that's for sure. And how do you decide whose story it is? What's mine, what's yours, what's out of bounds when you jump into a story of family? And and perhaps you can give us some details of that family that you're willing to share here. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, that's interesting because I wrote that, you know, there's always a different, not just motivation is too bland a word. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a different backstory, a different reason, a mm-hmm. different urgent, like imperative for writing every book. Provocation. And, Absolutely. Yeah, provocation. Yeah. And this was a combination of losing my parents and sister in a two-year span that was 92 to 94. And I had just gotten married in 91 and then uh, several months later, the following spring, uh, my sister Lucy died by suicide. And then a few months later, my dad died. He had a heart attack and fell, or the other way around. And it took him a while, but he, he, he lingered in the hospital for several weeks. But he died, and then my mother died two years later after a fall in front of my house. And in the midst of that, in 93, so my mom died in 94, in 93, my beautiful first baby daughter was born, Madeline, and it was such a profound period in my life. Mm-hmm. Here I was creating a new family, bringing new life, and, and honestly losing, losing my childhood family was one of the spurs that led me and, and Chris, my late husband, to say, okay, okay, yeah. Not that I was replacing them, but I wanted to bring new life in, because like, we were going to postpone having, having kids just a little longer, and I was no more postponing. And so I had this baby, and then Mama died. And I, literally while I was nursing her, or she was sleeping between my mother's legs in the, in the hospital bed as we waited for her to pass from a subdural hematoma. And I thought, well, this is where the spirituality enters the picture. I, in the middle of this, after being told that my mother just had a few hours to live, I brought... Madeline, my baby, down into the chapel at Albany Med, and I was sitting there crying, and this incredibly perceptive and kind, gentle chaplain, I don't remember his name, but whoever he was, he was a gift. He turned to me and he said, you know, asked me if I wanted to talk, and I told him, and I said, my daughter is never going to know my childhood family. Mm-hmm. And and even like telling the story now, I, it's hard I fight back tears because mm-hmm. this was a profound revelation. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. I'm the bearer of all these stories from my childhood. I just like this beautiful baby is never going to know yeah. my parents and sister. And he said to me, yes, they will, through you. Uh. And I just sat there. And, of course, it sounded like at the time I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't say that to him. I thanked him. But that stuck with me, I'm like, through me, through me. Mm-hmm. It has been my quest, <laughs> not just in writing that book, but in all the stories I've told my kids, my, my now three grown kids over the years, is to, to bring my family to life for them. And, and that, that book was, as a friend of mine, she named it for me. She said, Amy, that was grief work. Mm-hmm. I wrote it. It was a compulsion. I had to. I wanted to bring my family to life. Mm-hmm. For At that point, it was just Madeline, but I wanted to bring them to life for my kids. And there's the provocation. So so how yeah. about the territory? How about the privacy? How about the decisions oh, about... Oh, right. I didn't get to that. Yeah. No. <laughs> yes. No, no, you got the provocation, yes. which is so important, and, and, and that's yeah. so wonderful because I think so many people have had something said to them like that, but they think, yeah. well, that's not how real writers provoke their work. Yeah, it is. It is, absolutely. Yeah. And, right, so. and so I took a I took a long-winded way, a sort of a side route to come at the your question, which is say because I had lost them and I felt this imperative 
to write their stories. I did not feel like I was betraying any confidences. Mm. I felt strongly, maybe this is as a person of faith, but I think even if I weren't a person of faith, I would have felt like they would still be rooting for me to tell this story (laughs) in a way that felt as authentically as possible. And um, I love that. Yeah, and you know, my thing about my my parents, my dad had um, he had no short term memory because uh, he had made an attempt when I was eleven, in, in a suicide attempt, and was in a coma for nine days. I mean, his dementia was never named as mm-hmm. anything in particular, but I'm pretty certain that uh, there must have been some brain damage. But he had no short term memory. But my mother was always completely candid about all of it. Mm-hmm. And when he was in a coma, she brought me and, and Lucy in to see him because she thought, if he dies, I don't want them to think their dad just disappears. So that was hard. That was one of the hardest moments of my childhood, seeing my dad all puffed up and plugged up with mm-hmm. with all sorts of tubes. But that gave me the sense that, okay, this is true. This is authentic. This is real. And my mother was real about it. And so I never had the sense that uh, they would not want me to tell those stories. I did run the book past my half-sister, who was, she was the only daughter of my dad and his first wife who died. So I said, you know, this is, he's your dad too, so I want you to read it. Aside from that, yeah, I didn't, I didn't really think, I didn't really think would they be okay with me telling all these stories, because I just... Not just assumed, I knew they would be. It's a beautiful answer, and one that I think a lot of people can search their souls and find how they feel and how they think they're the people from whom they came might feel. You talk about authentic, your mother giving you this this sense of authenticity, and we have three suicides here. A suicide attempt by your father, a suicide by your sister, and then a suicide by your husband, which yeah. is chronicled in the 2014 book you published called Figuring Shit Out, Love, Laughter, Suicide, and Survival. But I would argue that none of this work is about suicide. And it's very much an adventure tale, watching you go kind of hand over hand up the mountain. In the end of that book, Figuring Shit Out, you advise the reader to turn your face to the sun. And mm-hmm. you give us this remarkable simple advice. It is advice. I mean, it's not stated as advice. It's not in any way, now, breeder, you must turn your face to the sun, but that's what you you show us that you do. Having created for us an enormous sense of reliability because you're so honest. So I just wanted to make that point that the authenticity that your mother seems to have instilled in you allows us to read you and come to the end of a book that shows you living through this experience and to to deciding to turn your face to the sun. It's It's a fairly remarkable journey, but it's one that you do in present tense. And I want to talk about (laughs) that because you deliver that book right from the opening. There are two cops at the door. It just jumps right in, but it's all in present tense. Why did you do it that way? Okay, the present tense backstory. It wasn't a conscious decision. That book was another book that, that it was a compulsion. It was, it was written on provocation. 
after Chris died, people would say, oh, are, are you going to write about this? Are you journaling? I'm like, no, no. Like, living through it is hard enough. He died in uh, September of 2011. In Easter the following year, my oldest, Madeline, who was the baby in the hospital long ago, uh, she was on a gap year in Ecuador. So I decided, well, I'm going to bring my other two kids, Jeannie and Mitchell, down to visit Madeline in Ecuador. And we had just one adventure after another, just Boom, 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 boom. It was just incredibly vivid. I took notes not because I wanted to write about it, but because I didn't want to forget it. Mm. And it was filled with these epiphanies, realizing that uh, we're going to make it through one way or the other. We're still a family. We're altered. Chris isn't here, but we're still a family. And I, I went back home, and my friend... Bob Whitaker, who who runs Madden America mm-hmm. and is an old friend from his, his years at the Times Union in Albany and he was a dear friend of Chris's, he and I had been emailing and so I told him about, you know, I promised to tell him stories about Ecuador, but he was in the middle of a book tour and he said, could you email me some stories? I'd love to hear him. So I just plunged in and wrote one after another these four emails describing everything that happened. And they were just, I happened to write them with a lot of shouty all caps. I happened to write them in the present tense because they felt so present to me. Hmm. And uh, I was going to fire them off to, uh, (laughs) well, the first one, I was going to fire off to Bob. And I thought, why should Bob be the only one to read this? (laughs) So so I copied friends and family and it was like, oh, tell us more. And so I, I wound up sending four long emails that I had no thought of expanding on them. And between those and another experience I had of walking to the garage rooftop where Chris actually jumped, and I I just went up there because I wanted, this is strange, but I wanted to see. I, I don't know why I wanted to be there, but I did. And I went back home. And just for myself, I wrote an essay about that, just for mm-hmm. myself. Mm-hmm. And again, present tense. I'm like, wow, because when you're grieving, it all feels present tense. You know, the, your dear ones are they're still with you. You're still processing their absence, but their absence is, it's just there. It's in the present tense. It's not yeah. something that happened and then it's over. And, and then I had a really comical experience uh, picking up a hitchhiker. And it's this this really friendly, quirky older guy was thumbing a ride, and uh, he wound up flirting with me. And I had to explain to him that my husband had died. It was the strangest thing. So I go back, and Bob had happened to call, so I told him the story, and and I jokingly said, "Oh, I ought to write a book about this. I had to call it Adventures in Widowhood." And I was joking. Mm-hmm. And Bob said, "No, no, no, you have to." You have to, you have to, you have to write it, you have to. And so he wouldn't leave me alone. It's like, you got to write it. Mm-hmm. I'm like, no, I'm too tired. It's like, you got to write it. So I finally thought, okay. And <laughs> then I realized, well, I've already written four chapters. <laughs> no, five, because I'd written four about Ecuador and one about mm-hmm. going up to the the rooftop. And uh, they were in the present tense for what whatever compulsion I was obeying. Mm. And uh, I just kept writing it that way. It was very, again, very shouty, lots of all caps, lots of swearing mm-hmm. from the beginning, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And very, very short, short, punchy, short, punchy essays. And yes. uh, and so I was in the middle of living through that first year, and it was present. It was a present tense year. 
Yeah, the present tense allows us to feel that the grief is sitting on you, with you, cloaking you. It's all around you all the time. It also creates this idea that you're present to every moment of it. It results in this great reliability on your part. We, we just say, oh, I, I'll go anywhere with her. And so we'll go to the rooftop with you. We'll go to the part where you go and get the cheap urn instead of paying for the double, <laughs> the double yeah. urn at the... And the poor guy at the at the funeral home, you know, who's got to concede that, yeah, you can rent a casket. You don't yeah. have to buy one. And it's wonderful. But it's we feel like we're sitting on your shoulder with you, which I think is is really effective. And and we feel the same way when you decided to tell a moth story in 2014. And this always is so important for writers to understand that you can have one huge life experience. And you can just keep writing from it as long mm -hmm. as each piece isn't about the same thing. And so yeah. your piece, your moth story, which is not about suicide and it's not about turning your face to the sun. And it's got these fantastic details. The doorbell rings. You're up in the attic. You come down. You see the two police people sitting there, standing there. You know what's happening. And you you end up watching Battlestar Galactica with your kids. Um, and, yeah. and the question becomes from the crematorium, do you want your husband's wedding ring burned with him? And this provocation, that question provokes this ability, as you say, to begin this grieving process differently about honest grief, about moving into this other place. And it's fascinating to me to watch you tell this story that lives, or honest pain, that's the phrase you used, right? You move into honest pain, you say. So talk to us just a little bit about how to take one experience of life, and now we're talking about the hugest, the, de the suicide of a husband, especially after a family history of suicide, and concentrate on that. They ask you this question, you do these specific things with the rings, and you allow yourself into what you refer to moving into honest pain. How did you take it there for that assignment of a moth story? Well, that was interesting because that was such an incredible privilege working mm -hmm. on that story with, mm -hmm. with the moth folks who are amazing. And it helped me shape it in a way mm -hmm. that was, that the producer I worked with was just, just marvelous and had me really zero in on moments that would connect in a very specific and visceral way. And she also urged me not to write it out. Because she said a lot of times, a lot of times writers, they want to write it out and memorize it, and that's not what you do. Mm -hmm. That's not the best way to do it. So it was really a challenge in a lot of ways to boil it down. I mean, the thing about talking about grief is it's not usually addressed in the way it actually plays out. Like we have these different narratives of grief. We, we have different cultural understandings of grief. We have different expectations of grief. We have things that we say that we're meant to say and things that we do that we're meant to do. And then we have the things that nobody ever talks about. Like after Chris died, I, I just had this like head to toe body ache. It was strange, like the touch deprivation. Mm -hmm. I had never read about this. I had to Google like crazy to find, you know, some widowhood support groups that, that talked about it. So I figured 
In telling any intensely personal story, especially one that's you know, really dark and on a subject that a lot of people not only don't talk about, but they really don't want to hear. I mean, mm-hmm. one reason we don't talk a lot, not candidly, about suicide and grief is because people don't, they don't want to hear it. They don't want to be reminded that that stuff happens. That's human not to want to hear it. But I figured, well, I'm writing this or I'm telling this story. <laughs> this horrible thing happened. If any good is to come out of this horrible thing, mm. I have to be honest. Yeah. Because I have to make someone else feel less alone. Mm. I mean, you don't know that's going to happen, but if it does happen, that's that's a gift. And that's that's not saying that the horrible thing that happened is ever going to be anything other than horrible. But it means that something good and even beautiful can come out of it but that requires honesty and openness because unless we're being honest and open we can't know it's the reason we do what we do we're sharing humanity yeah absolutely when we write memoir when we do good journalism when we ask provoking questions of authorities on the topics especially the topics that you write about for mad in america whether it be the the stress on college counselors or how music can can help us heal and and these are long form pieces of journalism that are that I'll put links in the in the transcript to on this wonderful site but we're we're sharing our humanity and as we start to wrap this up that's kind of where I want to go it's just to get your sense of what we're doing when we annotate what we have on us because our writing allows us to pull from us. And as you just said, if somebody else, you know, Emily Dickinson says it best, if I can keep one heart from breaking, I have not lived in vain. Mm. You know, those kinds of sentiments and not just mere sentimentality, which is the great difference in your work. It's sentiment that we get, not just mere sentimentality in your writing. You know, they allow other people to feel, learn, move through, maybe learn to turn their faces to the sun. But you know, it's one thing we say all the time as writers, oh, I don't know, I don't know how I feel about anything until I write it down. And that's true. But what are we really saying? Like, what happened to you, do you think, when you assigned yourself to sit down in the hard chair and take this stuff on? Did you understand it better? Did- yeah. This is what I say not just to other people, but to... I've said it to myself over the years that every time I sit down and grapple with something and shape it into a narrative, it helps me process it. It Mm. helps me understand it. That's, I think, why it's definitely a form of grief work. It doesn't make everything better. You know, all shiny and new, happy, peppy people. Happy, shiny people. I shouldn't be misquoting R.E.M. Um, But (laughs) I I, I love R.E.M. But, (laughs) yeah, I mean, I, I just... It was definitely a form of understanding what happened to me. And sometimes when I'm writing something, something personal, I, I won't really see it clearly until I've written it down. And I'll go, oh, okay, okay, so that's what that meant. I mean, it's very strange, mm-hmm. but sometimes I think of us, we're all kind of, <laughs> we're all sort of works of literature in a way. We're, we're craft, we craft these lives and we don't, necessarily have control over them but we can still see meaning in them the way we find meaning in literature or we find meaning in in movies or find meaning in in music i mean it's all part of it i think we're designed to really want to un- understand and make a story yeah. out of it I and mean, i think that's yeah. <laughs> since the dawn of 
language and music, we, we've just wanted to connect with people and share our stories, share our, our song. And with that in mind, I always say to people when they come to my memoir classes and, and counsel and coaching and all of those things, they say, I've got a story about suicide. I've got a story about the death of a child. I have the story of, you know, no one's going to want to read it. No one's going to buy it. I, I hear in publishing you can't sell books on death. And I always say, write it anyway. Yeah. Write it anyway. So what would you say? Yeah, I'd say write it anyway. Look, I... <laughs> In writing, as in music, you can make literally hundreds of dollars, you know? <laughs> wow, really? Yeah, How? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, I, it's not like any of anything I've written has, has sold many books, but they were still, it was still gifts to me to write them, and I'm still going to keep writing, and I'm still writing now. I'm writing things that may never get published or be on a stage or what have you, but I'm still going to write them. I, I, <laughs> oh, I, I don't have much of a choice. And I want to just, I'm at the stage in life, I'm like, oh, I'm just going to, I'm just going to enjoy this. I'm going to do what I can and tell what stories I can. And the rest of it, I have very little control over. And publishing has always been conservative. And yes, I was told repeatedly, oh, you know, that's too depressing. Um, you know, I, I got lots of wonderful rejections letters on both books saying, oh, this is so beautiful. Oh, oh, but it's, you know, Amy's not a name and it's too depressing. <laughs> but that's yeah. okay. Yeah, I wrote mm -hmm. them. They're out there. And uh, yeah. I, they've brought me nothing but, um, I don't know, is peace too big a word? Hoped? I'll go with peace those. Is a, yeah. Peace is a really good goal. Peace is a good yeah. goal. Yeah. Some peace. Not all peace, but some peace. No, some peace. Yeah. Well, I'm so grateful for you to come and talk about this. This is this is just the write it anyway school. I think the two of us could run a write it anyway school because <laughs> you just don't know. And um, you're such a beautiful example of just going into it and, and seeing what you're going to find. I will put all kinds of links to your current writing in Mad in America. But thank you, Amy. Thank you so much for coming along, for the candor, for the work. And yes, please do keep writing. It's a grace. <laughs> thank you, Marion, on all counts. This has been wonderful. You're so welcome. The writer is Amy Biancoli. Her books can be found where books are sold. See more on her at Mad in America which is located online at madinamerica.com. I'm Marion Roach-Smith, and you've been listening to Cordy. Cordy is produced by Overit Studios in Albany, New York. Reach them at overitstudios.com. Our producer is Adam Claremont. Our assistant is Lorna Bailey. Want more on the art and work of writing? Visit marionroach.com, where I offer online classes on how to write memoir. And thanks for listening. Don't forget to follow Cordy wherever you get your podcasts and listen to it wherever you go. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review. It helps others to find their way to their writing lives.